We're going to be talking about broken hearts this morning, but not in the way you think. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Jane Cahoon, Chris Ranowski, and Laura Johnston. It's Friday, our favorite day of the week, right? Woohoo! Yeah. Woohoo is right. And it's also the day, today's the last day of the heat rave. We're supposed to break after today, and I think that'll be welcome to all of us, especially those who are suffering stress, and we're about to talk about them. Let's get to it. What is broken heart syndrome and why do Cleveland Clinic researchers think they are seeing a lot of it because of the stress of the coronavirus? This was my favorite story yesterday, Chris Ranowski. I had never heard of broken heart syndrome, but it's a real thing. Right. So broken heart syndrome is sort of the colloquial name for stress cardiomyopathy, which is a dysfunction or failure in the heart muscle. And there is something that the Cleveland Clinic is studying right here in our backyard that cardiologists have actually seen a notable increase in this broken heart syndrome during the coronavirus pandemic, indicating that there are some physiological and emotional stress issues that are affecting people in very real ways as a result of, of everything that everybody's going through during lockdowns and unemployment and stuff. So, And it's like uh, having a heart attack, but you don't have the blocked arteries. It's like the same kind of thing. Right. It's, so it's like the pain and the sort of, <laughs> you, you sort of feel like you're having an actual heart attack, but you're not. And so what they're suggesting is that, you know, the prevalence of this is going to maybe continue as, as this as you know, some of the other stressors sort of start to kick in. So like unemployment, eviction, stuff like this, like all of that stress is just like bundling up in people's bodies and, and, and leading them to believe that they're having these heart attacks. Is there real heart distress? Is the heart behaving differently or is it more like phantom pain that feels like a heart attack? It, I mean, the heart is behaving differently. It, it's, it, it it's, definitely is. Okay. It, I mean, there's racing. There's it's it's more than just like tension. It's sort of somewhere in in between the two things. So, so what comes to mind is the old Sanford and Son show where Fred Sanford every time he got into stress with all his heart. <laughs> just say he was, Elizabeth. Yes. Exactly, man. I can't believe <laughs> remember that. You're much younger than I am. The other thing we should point out is none of these people actually had COVID. They tested them all, and in the clinic pointed that out. So they published this in a, in a prestigious medical journal yesterday, right? Right. So it was in the, uh, the journal of the American medical association. And, you know, what they're saying is, is this is serves as a barometer of the level of stress within a particular community. And, and they suggested that the tension could be peaking amid the coronavirus. And it's, again, it's that, it's that thing where we've been hearing a lot about all of the sort of other effects that this pandemic is having on us from the increase in stress, depression, anxiety. And this is just another thing, you know, things have so, a ripple effect. And and so, you know, we all, while our eyes are always on the coronavirus, we forget that people's fear of going to the doctor has increased. So that means they might get be less likely to get cancer checked out and stuff like that. So, you know, we think about the coronavirus, which is already really a devastating thing for public health. But then on top of it, we have all of these other things that are going to sort of start to pop up and see. And, you know, it's, it's good that they're paying attention to stuff like this. So, so Laura Johnson, we probably should talk to Julie Washington about putting together a guide to people on how to reduce stress in these stressful times, because this is something people can 
manage. Stress is something that if you focus on it, you can manage, but maybe we ought to help them because that has not been, it hasn't been top of mind. And there's really nobody better than Julie at putting together stories like this. Well, and I think that we were for so long just being like, well, we'll just get through this. Right. And we are living with this disease and we're going to be living with the stress for a long time. So this isn't just like a flash where you're like, I just got to get through it and then I can have my summer and it'll be great, right? No, we, we have to learn to live with this. No, and if you do, if we're going to have more stress, there's word out of Kazakhstan of a whole new form of pneumonia. I know, you really you stressed me out this morning with your emails. <laughs> I know, I like, it's oh. like 1,700 people have died mostly since mid-June and they don't know what's causing it. They say it's much more deadly than the coronavirus. You, well, so. You're saying living with the disease, like that's, that's exactly what DeWine says now. We went from, we're all in this together to, well, we just got to live with it now. Live so. with it. Right? <laughs> okay. We're living with it. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Mike DeWine finally explain his new county-by-county coronavirus strategy and what Northeast Ohio counties moved into the coronavirus red zone Thursday, meaning they now have mask requirements? Jane Coon, we've been beating up Mike DeWine pretty much for two weeks saying, explain your change of heart. You originally originally said, we're we're not going to do this county-by-county or locally. Then he switches it. Then he says, I'm going to rely on local officials. And then he puts in orders. So finally yesterday, he explained himself. What did he say? And what did, did you say? I'm the one beating him up. I, I think lots of people were beating him up. I don't own that myself. You're just asking Jane always to extrapolate what is in Mike DeWine's head. So today she doesn't have to. She can just tell him. And- but hey, if it, the pressure of this podcast got him to explain himself, score one for this week in the CLE. So Jane, what's the answer? Yes, we brought Mike DeWine to his knees. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> He shed some light on on why he switched gears here. You know, he had said that it would be a disaster to to have a, a piecemeal approach from county to county. But now he's, of course, doing that. And what he said was that, you know, we have data now. We, we have certain baseline things that do apply statewide, like the mass gatherings, you know, and so forth. But now we've got all this data we can drill in. And he said there's an argument to be made that, Things are really different in, for instance, a rural county versus an urban county, and that we should use this data to do what makes sense. And then he also said that, you know, time has passed and public attitudes have shifted on this, that, for instance, when he said we require masks for for everybody like customers at businesses. And then he backed off of that, you know, because he got all this blowback. He said people just weren't ready for it, but we've waited. And now, you know, the situation's more serious and people are more accepting of this. And look, two things. One, we knew how bad things were county by county in broad strokes, but he's indeed correct. They are drilling into a higher level of data that they can see things. And so the parameters he's using for his county rating system are pretty pretty well-developed and thorough. I don't know who's advising this guy, but he should have explained this originally, but, <laughs> but he's done it. So he kind of tried before. He just didn't. He, he got more. Uh, he, it, it was gobbledygook. It didn't make any <laughs> sense. And, and people loved our story, reminding them that he called this a disaster. As an yes, apart. yes. So now we have more counties in the red zone. Right. And, and Cuyahoga actually looks like it's going to be in the purple zone, which I have a question about. But let's deal with the red zone first. There's some additional Northeast Ohio counties that are in it, and that carries the mask requirement, right? Right. We have half a dozen new ones. In Northeast Ohio, we have Summit and Lorraine. 
And then we also have Claremont, Fairfield, Pickaway, and Wood counties. And then Huron County, which had been in the red zone, dropped down to the orange zone. So that was good news for them. But the bottom line is we have a dozen counties all together. And for the additional counties in the red zone, that mask requirement takes effect at 6 p.m. today. So it's interesting that Franklin County was heading toward the purple zone, but they fell back. He's decided that you have to be you have to have the measurements to be moved into the purple zone for two full weeks before he'll move you there. So Cuyahoga has been in it for a week and you're not going to have the answer to this. So so it's not your fault. Oh, good. (laughs) When when he originally announced these zones, he passed over pretty quickly what the purple zone meant. I don't know why red isn't worse. Red is worse than purple. But he said (laughs) that you would be advised to stay home except for essential services. Now, back when he shut the state down, it was stay home except for essential services and everything that was non-essential was closed. So when they say you would have to stay home except for non-essential services, does that mean you can't go to get a haircut? You can't go to the tattoo parlor because he's not closing them down. This seems like it's a redefinition of essential services. Like I said, we don't have the answer because he passed over it, but we're going to start asking about this now, right? Right. But that wouldn't be a mandate, I don't believe. It's it's a recommendation. So before we, we did have a mandate, stay at home, close non-essential businesses. Now, I mean, it would be, you know, they would have to abide by this mask requirement, but I believe it's just people are would be urged to stay home unless they absolutely had to go out. So I was just say, I think there's still so many questions even about the red, you know, because people are wondering if you're outside, we got all those questions about if you're outside and you're exercising and you're in a park, but you're not six feet, are you going to have to wear a mask? And people were asking, do you have to wear it at a pool if you're sitting in your chair? And I think there's still just so many things that we don't know. We didn't even get the mask order until an hour after it went into effect on Tuesday. So what it means for purple, I mean, God, I know, but let, let, Look, I, I want to stick with the purple for a second, because okay. when we were closed down, People were not going to work. Offices were closed down. People were not getting haircuts. They were not doing all of these things that he has now reopened. And so if he advises you not to go for essential services, is he in essence advising you to work from home, not get haircuts, not do all these things because that will cripple those businesses? This is not a fine point. He has not explained himself on this, but if I stay home, because I'm following his advice, it's a form of lockdown and it has the crippling effect on the economy. So I don't think we have clarity on what the difference is between purple and red. Jane, do you have anything that would disagree with that? Only that now that Mike DeWine has heard your words once again, he's going to provide a clear explanation at the next briefing. I'm sure of it. Okay. Can I, can I answer that really quick? Go ahead, Chris Ranowski. I think the point that you're trying to get at, Chris, is that really, like, where are the teeth in this? Am I, am I right in that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like what feels like it's going on here is, again, he's sort of deferring to people doing the right thing. You know, it's everybody's going to stay home voluntarily. Businesses will make the decisions themselves, whether they want to stay open during this or not, whether it's worth it. And, you know, also, you know, Mike DeWine and and John Houston and, and the state government doesn't have to say, you have to shut down, you have to stay home. 
you have to wear them. You know, I mean, that's that's where we're at here now. I think, but, you know, some okay. of the some of the masks aren't liberty. People have really gotten the ear of the government and really are are keeping them from really making some tough choices for the public again. But again, if they say we're advising you to stay home except for essential services, mm-hmm. you're going to put barbers out of business. And we don't have data that says people are getting the coronavirus at barbers. We, yeah. we don't have it that they're getting it at tattoo parlors. So it would almost be more useful if they said, look, when we get to the purple zone, you shouldn't go to bars. We, mm-hmm. you know, the bars are out and we should close them down or something. Where is the virus spreading? And in those counties that had purple, target that. Because if you just say you should stay home, you know, most people are already doing that. So I think this is way too vague to be useful at this point. And so maybe Jane's right. Maybe he'll step up on Tuesday and explain it. When we keep talking about the enforcement and there's a press conference at 2.30 today that the Cuyahoga County Board of Health is actually supposed to address this. But maybe you step up enforcement when you get to purple because I sent out a message on our subtext message platform about the update for the more counties being added to the, the red. And I got a lot of very angry responses, people saying, you can't make me wear a mask. So, I mean, there's just a lot of people out there that say, no, I'm not doing it. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why are health experts telling us they do not expect the reopening of schools to cause the spread of the coronavirus? This is interesting because there are some other countries that are moving back to closing schools because they think it's spreading the coronavirus. But in America, the movement is let's get everybody back in the schools. I'm kind of surprised that what we found when we did our story with health experts, but there's a huge caveat, Laura Johnston. What is it? Yeah, I feel like you you said it right there when you're like, in America, here's what we're doing. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, we there's there's this data that shows that kids aren't very susceptible to the coronavirus. There's a survey of 150,000 COVID patients by the CDC found that kids 17 and under, this is 22% of the U.S. population, account for fewer than 2% of confirmed infections. So they're saying kids aren't that susceptible. They're not getting it. They're not going to spread it as much. And that the measures that schools are putting in place, masks, social distancing, sanitizing, is going to keep the schools from becoming hotbeds of the virus. I really want this to be true because I really believe my kids need to go to school for their own sake and mine, but it seems a little out of touch with the surges we are seeing right now. Well, it's also, I think, an incredible gamble because we have no idea in America how the virus might spread in schools. That's what the doctor said. You know, right. the, sci- the science they're looking at says we don't think this will be the vector, but they don't know. And And once the kids go back, one thing somebody did point out in one of the messages I got on my text message account was if the kids go back, we will be seeing the results about the same time early voting begins. So that could have a major effect on the election, which, okay, that could be interesting, too. Anyway, I I was surprised it was not the medical expert. I was surprised that we heard from them that they think it's okay. We'll have to see how it turns out. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cleveland Housing Court really sign an eviction order for someone because he did not know how to participate in his eviction hearing via Zoom? Chris Ranowski, this was my second favorite story of the day yesterday, <laughs> behind the broken heart syndrome. Right. What is going on in eviction and housing court in Cleveland? And much like the broken heart syndrome story, this actually is something that is going to be kind of the second 
awful wave that the coronavirus is going to create, which is, you know, issues of housing insecurity and, and, and homelessness and people getting thrown out of their houses and stuff. And so Eric Heisig, a real estate reporter, found a man who, yeah, a judge ruled against him and said that he should be evicted from his house. And, and part of the reason is because he and his attorney did not show up to the hearing. Now, the reason that he and his attorney did not show up to the hearing is because neither of them, both of them say they did not get a link to the virtual hearing through the Zoom platform so they could attend it from a distance as opposed to going into the court. And and so the attorney who works for the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland basically said, like, look, I was in I was in Utah. I was there. I, I was sitting there waiting for over an hour for this thing to start. And I never got the link. And then she contacted the bailiff and, and basically learned what had happened, which is the judge had, had ruled against them and ordered this guy to be thrown out of the house. You know, this does raise an issue that I think that a lot of courts that are, are operating in a distance are starting to wrangle with, which is part of the issue of, of, of doing stuff this way is that there is a wide spectrum of technology literacy, I guess. And in this case, doesn't really illustrate it as much as others might. But, you know, because this seems to be an issue that the court had in getting the information to both the defendant and the attorney. But, you know, I mean, when I think of like, if my parents had to do something like this remotely, like they have a difficult time with computer technology. So they they might struggle with it, you know, and some people don't even have access to stuff. It's a due process. I mean, you can't evict somebody who doesn't have notice that this is coming. And I can't imagine that this order stands. The court will have to deal with this because otherwise they're facing due process violations. And, you know, so I think there is going to be, if I remember correctly, there is going to be another, they are going to look at it again. (laughs) But in a weird twist of fate, Eric Heisig emailed me last night and said somebody contacted him and said they would be willing to pay this guy's rent for him. So, um, so, you know, he may get a temporary reprieve in that sense. But this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, this is one isolated story. And, you know, it's my understanding that legal aid is pretty overwhelmed right now with dealing with eviction cases because this is going to start to become a huge problem as the money, the relief for landlords and renters are are starting to dry up. And if the government doesn't renew that stuff, then we're going to be in a lot of we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. Has somebody finally done something to stop cities from collecting income taxes from people who have not stepped foot inside cities for four months because of the coronavirus? We've been pounding on this topic almost since day one. We all pay Cleveland income tax. Most of us are not in Cleveland. Even Chris Ronowski is outside of Cleveland now. And (laughs) you're taking all of our money, even though we're, we're not there. And it's just seems fundamentally wrong. Jane Cahoon, somebody is finally doing something. And there was some colorful language that they used to to take the step. Yes, there was. And, you know, on a normal day, Chris, this would be your very favorite story. (laughs) Number three now, because we had so much other interesting news. But there has been a lawsuit filed in Franklin County. Just for a quick background, the state legislature back in March passed this coronavirus relief bill, and they tucked into it this little provision that said employers have to keep withholding municipal income taxes for the city, which is the employee's principal place of work. But as we know, people were 
forced to work at home by the stay-at-home order and the shutdown of businesses. So many Ohioans continue to pay these taxes to the cities where they haven't stepped foot in months. So the Buckeye Institute, which is a conservative policy organization, filed this lawsuit against the city of Columbus, and they also named the Ohio Attorney General, Dave Yost. They want this law declared unconstitutional. I think many people feel that they're entitled to refunds under this, but these were few people paying taxes to Columbus who asked for their money back and haven't haven't heard anything. But you're right, the colorful language, it was my favorite thing about this story. The guy who's the president of the Buckeye Institute, he really summed up their case well. He said, it's almost like something out of a Kafka novel where we're going to require you not to do something and then tax you as if you did it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's been the fundamental problem. And look, you know, we pointed this out. This is devastating for cities. They're they're going, look, I've said from the beginning, they're not going to keep that money. It's illegal. They can't take money from you when when you're not there. But once they lose that money, they're devastated. uh, They're going to have to cut police forces. But, you know, we're not in the subsidy business for Ohio City. So it's like if somebody wants to give Cleveland extra money, they can do that, but they right. can't require I mean, it. It's interesting. That was one of the arguments that the the city attorney, he told Andrew Tobias, our reporter, that, you know, disrupting the system of collecting taxes could cause cities to lose millions in revenue. But is that a reason to <laughs> no. go against what the, look, what the, look, look, man, this would be like if Los Angeles decided it was broke and it started taxing your income. I mean, that's yeah. how preposterous this is. You don't work there. Right. You well, know, it's this is Chris Manaski. Maybe we can we can treat this like masks. Like maybe we can just appeal to people to do the right thing and give the city some money <laughs> so it doesn't have to adjust yeah. its budget. The other colorful quote from the Buckeye Institute president was he said I'm as much of a fan of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood as the next guy, but the Ohio Constitution doesn't allow cities to tax people based on (laughs) (laughs) make-believe. All right, we'll leave that one there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. In this year of near-biblical plague, should we expect the monster algae to arise in Lake Erie? Laura Johnston, we've had a lot of problems with algae over the years. It seemed like it rained a lot this spring, but it's not looking that bad, huh? Not looking that bad. They're saying moderate, which means a 4.5 on the scale of 1 to 10, which one year we broke and they made it as a 10.5. But it should not be as bad as last year, which is about a 7.3, but worse than 2018, which was actually predicted to be a 6, but ended up about a 3.5. So, and no one really ever figured out why. Is the high water levels that you've written about so much, we've broken records almost every mm-hmm. month for a year, I guess not last month, but every other month, is is having all the extra water, the two feet of extra water, making a difference? They actually addressed this yesterday. They said, no, it's not really making much of a difference. The rain is the big issue. And we they had a dry spring in the Maumee Valley where it matters because that's where all the fertilizer is that runs into the lake. And then maybe we didn't have as many of those hard rainstorms, which knock all of the 
the earth off into the water. So that was one reason that it's not supposed to be as bad. Also, the lake was really cold in May and June. And as someone who swam in it in wetsuit, I concur. So that stopped any algae from forming until actually this week. So they're getting a slow start to this season. And the thing is, this hasn't, this doesn't necessarily mean, even though it's it's not a bad forecast, that our efforts are working. We were supposed to knock down our phosphorus intake into the lake by 20% by now. And I don't think we have any measurable difference. So a, a bunch of environmental groups responded yesterday and said, we need to crack down we need to do more than these voluntary efforts. Is the water still cold? I was fascinated by the video you sent us after the podcast <laughs> yesterday, you cartwheeling off of your stand-up paddleboard into the lake. My wife doesn't know how you have the agility to do that. I mean, it's hard enough just standing on the damn things, and yet you're cartwheeling off of one. Is it was it still- to, be, to be fair to listeners, it is not a graceful cartwheel, and my friends can do headstands. I cannot do a headstand. But is the um, water is the water no, heated up? It, it is so warm now. It feels like a warm pool. Yeah, it's okay. gone way up with this hot weather. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Are pregnant women in more danger from the coronavirus than we thought in the beginning of the pandemic? And what are Cleveland hospitals doing to help? Chris Ronowski, the early statements were, this isn't a big deal for pregnant women, but something has changed as the science continues to evolve. Right. So uh, two weeks ago, the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention made an abrupt reversal on how they believe the coronavirus affects pregnant women. And after months of declaring that the virus didn't seem to carry any additional risk to expected mothers, the federal agency warned that they could be more likely to develop severe symptoms. So this is, you know, like a lot of things that changed as our understanding of the virus sort of evolved over time. And this is sort of an indication that as researchers across the globe race to learn about the virus that causes COVID-19, there's a little evidence of its effect on pregnant women. So some some more studying needed to be done. So the doctors at the clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals and Metro Health are working with Case Western Reserve University to gather more data from women when they give birth. And what they're really focusing on is uh, collecting amniotic fluid, placenta, breast milk, vaginal secretions uh, when the women give birth to see if any of this, any if the virus sort of passes through the placenta and and through these things during pregnancy and what potential effects it might have on the mother and the fetus. Is there any evidence yet that it is affecting the infants when they're born? So right now there are, again, the evidence is so small that they don't really want to make a determination of that. But what's interesting about this is one of the things that they want to include is that they're trying to advocate to have pregnant women actually in the clinical tests for possible coronavirus treatments and vaccine candidates, because that's something that they don't normally do. Like pregnant women have historically been barred from clinical trials for vaccine candidates, you know, even though the U.S. Institute of Medicine recommended against excluding them back in 1994. But one of the people that that Evan spoke to, Evan McDonald spoke to, said that leaving pregnant women out of the research can counterintuitively harm them and the fetus that they carry. So I think, you know, right now there is a limited amount of evidence that said there can be some some damage to the fetus as a result of this. But, you know, in the medical community, that's not usually not enough for them to say outright that that is the case. So it'll probably take a lot more time and examination to decide whether 
you know, they can make a definitive ruling on that. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right. That was a good, good podcast, guys. Although I, I think Jane gave me more hell than I did. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you were. Come on. It's Friday. I must have done something bad to Jane. Earlier in the week. so little. It, you know, there's, there's so little joy in life anymore. And yeah. <laughs> What about this weekend? Are you guys going to have any joy this weekend? Well, it's going to rain. <laughs> yeah. Break from the weather. That will bring joy. Okay. Well, there you go. And Laura, you'll be out doing cartwheels on your paddleboard. Well, I know this is where you're going to roll your eyes at me, but we, we were planning to go to the pool and stay socially distant. So, well, it's a, it's a tough question, right? You can swim in Lake Erie and be surrounded by sewage, or you can go to the pool and be surrounded by coronavirus. I don't know, man. Swimming, swimming is a tough choice. Well, thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody for listening to this week in the CLE. We will be back on Monday. <laughs>